So this is, today's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 17, or 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord, praise be to Christ. So this is the passage we're going to work with this morning. It's short, it's made up of clauses, and we're just going to work our way through it, clause by clause, as a way of stepping into a new year. Let me be the first to bid you, well, I guess I'm not the first because Patrick already did it, but I'm going to bid you an early Happy New Year anyway. Uh, we made it to the end of 2017. For some of us, we get to the end of 2017 and we just think, man, this was a wonderful year. What, a, what an incredible year we had. And you're kind of just excited about what's to come. For others of us, maybe it was 2017 was just the hardest year you can remember um, going through. For a lot of us, probably it was just another year. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference necessarily between 2017, 2016, 2015. But we are a species that marks the passage of time. And we're the only ones who do this. We, we mark the passage of time. People mark the passage of time. And we do it in a way that if you look at it, it could seem arbitrary. What's the difference between December 31st and January 1st as to August 10th and August 11th? Um, it, it can seem a little bit arbitrary, but we mark the passage of time. And the reason we do this is because we understand that our lives matter, that it, it matters that we're here, uh, it matters that we're alive, that there's consequence, there's weight uh, to our existence. And today's passage from which I'm going to be preaching is a reminder of this. It's a reminder that our, our lives have value because what Paul is saying here to believers is he's giving us instructions for how to practice the Christian life how to live, not just, he's not just giving us lists of things to do occasionally, he's giving us disciplines to practice. And why should we practice these disciplines? He tells us, he says, because these things, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, these things, those are the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you've ever wondered what's God's will for my life, well, Here's part of the answer to that, and it's actually a big part of the answer to that. God's will for your life is that you would rejoice always, that you would pray without ceasing, and that you would give thanks in all circumstances, that this would be a, a habit, a practice in the way that you live. Now, think about the implications of just the statement that God has a will for your life. It means you're on the mind of God. It means God has taken an interest in us, that we're not insignificant to Him, that He, that he sees our lives, that we count time, we mark time, we, we do this because we believe our lives matter, and part of the reason we believe our lives matter is because our lives matter to God. And so He created us to be people who feel the significance of our existence. God is more interested in us than we might imagine, and these three commands rejoice, pray, and give thanks, all speak to the sort of life that we were made to have with God, and what they tell us is the kind of life, the kind of relationship you're meant to have with God is one that is always increasingly more and more intimate, that you move from unfamiliarity to familiarity, to intimacy even. 
And so this morning, we're going to unpack these, these verses just a clause at a time, but I want to set it up in the beginning here um, by just talking about spiritual disciplines and saying that there's an art to the Christian life. I love art. If you have been around me for any amount of time, you know that this is a passion of mine. But any artist will tell you that learning a craft takes practice. You just have to practice. You have to drill. You have to learn things. You have to get fundamentals squared away. And I think, you know, there must have been a time, there had to have been a time when Rembrandt drew some terrible paintings, right? There had to have been a time when from Rembrandt's hand came stick figures that only a mother would love. There had to have been, right? Because, because we, we learn over time. There had to have been a time where this Dutch Renaissance master, whose own peers, by the way, referred to him as the master, when his art was just embarrassing, and surely the same goes for Yo-Yo Ma. Surely his bow screeched across his cello strings, causing his parents and his siblings to flee the room. Surely there was a time when little LeBron James could just, just couldn't heave that basketball high enough to even touch the rim. We practice. We practice the Christian life. Art takes time. Any artist will tell you that. But what they will also tell you is that mastery begets joy, that the better you become at something, the more you enjoy it. I have a daughter who is learning how to play acoustic guitar. I could ask for a show of hands who here in the room plays acoustic guitar, but it's all of you, um, so I won't. <clears throat> but she's in that stage where she's, where she's having that alien experience where she's trying to make chords with her left hand and trying to change from one chord to another, and she's thinking what all of you have thought, and that is, how, can you, how do you do this? How is this possible? But those of you who have learned how to change chords will say, hang in there. It's one of the hardest things to kind of learn about guitar, but once you get it, it unlocks a world of possibility because every song written in the last hundred years only has four of them. You can play them all. You just got to learn those four chords. I want to show you a painting by Rembrandt, and I had a slide prepared to show it up there, but we're having projector issues. If you notice, the screen's a little wonky today. It's, it's, uh, it's, we, just had, we didn't have slides for the first service, and um, so... And the projector we have, it, just, it won't do justice to the Rembrandt I want you to see. And so I've printed out... Um, two Rembrandts I'm going to talk about this morning um, as a part of this, and I'm going to leave them up here after the service if you want to come and take a closer look at them, but, uh, but for now I'm just going to hold them up. I know you can't see the detail in these things, but I want to show you this particular Rembrandt right here, and let me just describe it to you. This painting is a painting that I believe Rembrandt had a lot of fun making because mastery begets joy, and this is a masterpiece. Rembrandt painted this painting when he was 25 years old. A 25-year-old did this. This painting is called Jesus Presented in the Temple. It is when, Jesus, when Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple, and Simeon is there, and he blesses Jesus. Remember that passage a couple weeks ago Dr. Lim preached on? And when you look at this painting, one of the things that you will see... Sorry, I, you guys get shortchanged every time on this side. So here, I'm going to hold it up so you can see it. 
It'll be right here if you need to look at it. But this painting, if you were to go over, fly across the ocean, go to The Hague, there on the western coast of the Netherlands, and see this masterpiece in person, you would notice that there are over 50 individual people painted into this scene, each of them with their own wardrobe, with their own facial expressions. And you would notice the architecture, how it's just dazzling, how there are these ornate pillars that just rise up out of this stone slab floor, and they hold these beautiful arches, and you would see this rising staircase, these elegant steps that act as risers to host all of the people so you can see them all. And you would see the use of the light and the dark that would become Rembrandt's hallmark style. You would see how the Holy Family watches Simeon bless the Christ child and how the Christ child is actually the source of light in the painting. And you don't look at it because he's a master. You don't look at it and think it's a picture of a glowing baby, but it is. And it's just an amazing piece of work. And what I want to say about this for now is I want to say, this is young Rembrandt showing us what he can do. There's nothing subtle. There's nothing restrained about this painting. Rembrandt here, 25-year-old Rembrandt, is flexing. He's not only flexing, he's kissing his artistic bicep as he winks at us with this painting. That's what he's doing here. He's showing us what he's capable of. And you know that Rembrandt didn't go from stick figures to that without practice. I mean, he just had to practice. He had to learn what makes for good composition. He had to study light and shadow and the weight of lines and vanishing points. And, and, and he had to study the human form. He had to drill in the fundamentals of all of these things so that so that they wouldn't be just off enough that it would distract you from seeing the overall composition. And I would submit to you, this is a pretty good analogy for living the Christian life. A child can embrace the simplest board book basics of the gospel and offer stick figure prayers to God. But living the Christian life over time is an art. It's an art that we spend our entire lives learning and we spend our lives learning until the day the Lord brings us home. We never run out of things to learn. Today's biblical commands to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks, those are forms of art. They're not just things to be done. They're things to be practiced. Do you get the difference? You don't just do it. You practice it. You get better at it. You learn. You learn what it means. And here's a promise. A promise is that mastery begets joy. If you practice these things regularly, you will develop in the craft of praying, of rejoicing, of gratitude. Before we unpack those three things, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, I want to put those commands in a category because they have something in common. These commands, and listen, I keep using the word command because that's what they are. They're commands, but I keep using the word command, and in our age of nobody gets to tell me what to do individualism, that word might set some of us on edge. And to that, I just want to say, look, if we're going to take the Bible seriously at all, 
then we have to acknowledge it is filled with commands. Not just suggestions or ideas, but it's filled with commands for how to live if we are to claim the name of God. There's no getting around that. These commands are about the inner life of the believer, what's going on inside of us. And everybody has an inner inner life. It's that place where our true character resides. It's that place where we're most unfiltered, where we're honest with ourselves about our joys and our sorrows and our hopes and our pains and our anger. Our anger lives there. One way many of us respond to pain and struggle is we just try to calcify that inner life. We try to just go around and shut off the lights in the rooms we don't like. But when we do that, we end up shutting down everything. If we shut down failure and pain and our capacity to feel those things, we don't leave room for joy or prayer or thanksgiving because those are also part of the inner life and we're just trying to control it rather than grow in it. Why I bring this up? I bring it up because the Christian life is all about the inner life. Jesus talked about this. Scripture talks about this. Jesus, it's, and in fact, it's a great synopsis for what the gospel is. God is after your heart. <laughs> He's after your heart. He's not just after your behavior, your conduct. That's all part of it, but that's not what he's after. He's after your heart. The external things we do as Christians are to spring from an inner affection for God. They're not to exist as substitutes for an inner affection for God. Consider from Scripture, Jesus, in Matthew 23, he rebukes the Pharisees, and what he says to them, these are some of the finest rule keepers around. Externally, they are pristine. And Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. Listen to the image about the inner life. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. 1 Samuel 16, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on what? The heart, the inner life. God is after your heart. If you want something to put on a post-it note on your mirror every morning where you will see it or on your dashboard, Every day of 2018, something that would be good to practice, maybe those would be the words, God is after my heart. And every day see those words, God is after my heart. He's after my heart. Rehearse it. Because today's verses aren't instructions to help Christians better ourselves. These verses are here, and they're about God fighting for us, fighting for our heart, to keep it alive. We put up certain checkpoints when, when, when sorrow comes, when pain comes, we vow never again to let life hurt us in the way that it did. And these checkpoints, checkpoints are based, in, they're based on fear and man-centered protective measures. We're trying to keep the world small enough to contain on our own, but it's not. And today's scripture calls us to live in a bigger world, one where God is at the center of it. And we're given counsel for how to live in that world. And the counsel is, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks. Let's look at those three before wrapping with, with, with a final, another Rembrandt I want you to see. Rejoice always. It's a simple command. Rejoice always. It's also a perplexing command. 
isn't it? Because we all have things in our lives that seem to draw from us the exact opposite response. You might even say, it's a disingenuous command. Why would God call me to rejoice always in the face of all these sorrows that I know he knows I know? We think of our struggles, we think of our sorrows, we think of things that didn't pan out. We think of a broken heart. And we think, is this command even realistic? And if so, what does it mean then to rejoice always? Because it can't mean be happy always. Christian joy, we have to remember, is a fruit of the Spirit. This is something God gives to us. It isn't anchored in what's happening to me. It is anchored in what has happened for me. That's what my Christian joy is anchored in. Not what is, in ha- not what is happening to me, but what, is in ha- what has happened for me. The joy is not that things are going okay right now. The joy, and Scott says this all the time from this pulpit, the joy is that things shall be okay forever. And not just okay, but glorious. And so one great gift of this command to rejoice always is that it calls for perspective without dismissing pain. It calls us to put our pain into perspective. It causes us to say, what what cause do I have for joy? Answer, the resurrection of the Son of God who lived and died in my place and defeated the power of sin and death for me and reconciled me to my maker. That's my cause for joy. Okay, what has the power to nullify that joy? Well, nothing has the power to nullify that joy. Okay, okay, if nothing has the power to nullify that joy, then I'm able to look at those pains and those sorrows without having to dismiss that joy. Christians don't anchor our joy in situations. We anchor it in what Christ has done. The command is is very realistic, and it's not only realistic, it's logical. If my hope rests in knowing Christ has defeated death and reconciled me to my, my Creator, then it follows that I always have cause for joy, and it also follows that I am never destitute. I mean, feel it. Brothers and sisters, your feelings lie to you. Mind you, I'm never destitute. And because I always have cause for joy, because I am never completely destitute, then I can look at my deepest pain and I can look at it in light of the cross and I can acknowledge the brokenness in the world, that, uh, the brokenness in the world and the brokenness that is in me and I can lament, which is a very biblical thing to do. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear me trying to shame you if you struggle to live in joy because here's the thing. I have seasons in my own life when it seems next to impossible to muster any joy. I struggle with depression. I know many in this room do too. And it's real. But lament is a necessary skill in the art of rejoicing. Lament is a necessary skill in the art of rejoicing. Knowing how to position the darkness against the light in a way that is true. 
When God tells us to rejoice in all situations because Christ has defeated death, it's a mercy. Then when we say, okay, I want to now express in light of that great victory, I want to express my sorrow. I want to express my defeat in the context of so great a victory. And that itself is an art. It's a biblical art, in fact. It's called lament. When we lament, we express our sorrow and try to put it into words. And what we find when we do that is we often find that comfort awaits us in the form of an applicable scripture, in the patience or words of a friend, or in a spirit-given moment of clarity. Lament is a skill that is part of the art of practicing rejoicing. Our joy is anchored in what Christ has done. Pray without ceasing. This can't mean, right, 24-7, 365, you're on your knees in your prayer closet and you're never coming out. There are too many other places in the Bible that tell you you can't do that for that to be what this means. Scripture has to interpret Scripture. This phrase, pray without ceasing, the verb here is what's called a customary present, which means it's an ongoing regularity, right? It's an ongoing regularity. Pray regularly and don't stop praying regularly. It's also directional, pray unto, pray to. And so this command, pray without ceasing, it describes an action and a posture to always be in the posture of leaning into the reality of the nearness of God. Prayer is not negotiation with God, it's surrendering to His will, it's staying in communication with Him, and we know that any relationship needs good communication, regular communication, you know, pray without ceasing in a regular ongoing way is the same counsel we would give to, to couples, talk without ceasing, talk regularly in an ongoing way and don't stop. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for when we pray, sometimes He does not give us what we ask for. And in those situations, we might say, well, then why bother praying if he's not going to give me what I want? C.S. Lewis sometimes has just a great way of cutting through a lot of stuff and just getting to the heart of something. Here's what he says about that. If you're struggling with, I ask God for things and he doesn't give it to me, so why should I pray? Here's some perspective for us. C.S. Lewis writes, prayer is request. The essence of request as distinct from compulsion, is that it may or may not be granted. If, he says, an infinitely wise being listens to the requests of finite and foolish creatures, of course he will sometimes grant and sometimes refuse them. That's helpful to me. Oh yeah, it's a mercy when God says, I will not answer your prayer prayed in foolishness or your nearsighted desires. We don't pray for stuff. We pray to know Him. That's what it's for. It's to bring us into the presence of God in an intentional, relational way. This is why we practice the art of prayer. And the more we practice, the better we get at it. Right? It's one of the great rewards of following Jesus over the course of time is we develop skills for communicating with Him like Rembrandt with his canvas. And then third, give thanks in all circumstances. I don't want to say much about this one necessarily, but just 
gratitude is a mark of the Christian life. The word here for give thanks is Eucharisteo, which is the same word that we use for the communion table. It's a joyful thanksgiving for grace. Let there be a joyful thanksgiving for grace in all circumstances. G.K. Chesterton said once that the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. For the Christian, we have a lot to be thankful for and we have one to be thankful to. What are we to do with that gratitude? It sounds so fundamental and yet it's what we tell our children. You say thank you. You say thank you. And you don't just say it, you consider the gratitude. You consider what it is that you've been given. Wrapping up, this passage says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's What's he talking about? He's saying it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you that you would be a rejoicing, praying, thankful person. That this would be something we would practice in our lives. Not just do on occasion, but that it would be a practice. He's saying the will of God is that these would mark our inner lives. Why does it matter to look good in front of other people? No. These are ways we practice the art of intimacy with God. By focusing on joy, by praying regularly, by giving thanks, we tune our minds to fix on Him. We tune our hearts to rest in Him. And we would be amazed at what would fall into place when we practice these fundamentals regularly. What's the end game of all this? Just checking boxes and making sure we did this every day? Let's go back to Rembrandt again. I'm going to show you another painting. And again, these will be up here for you to see later. This one right here. This painting is also called Jesus Presented in the Temple. And it is the same scene, actually, that I showed you of the other one. This painting was painted when Rembrandt was 63 years old. This was painted the year that he died. An old Rembrandt painted this one. And it is of Simeon holding Jesus and Mary looking on. If you compare the two, it helps us to see what growing in intimacy with God looks like. What it looks like when we give our lives to practicing the art of rejoicing and prayer and gratitude, the difference between these two paintings. Because in one, it's elaborate, it's extravagant, it's filled, every bit of the canvas is just filled with rich detail. But the other was just so simple. One features more than two dozen distinct individual people. Another, only three. Simeon, Jesus, and Mary. One shows off everything the young painter is capable of. The other one has this focused restraint. Why are they so different? They're different because the artist has grown. The 25-year-old Rembrandt did not know the struggle and the sorrow that he would face when he imagined the scene of Jesus being presented in the temple. He saw the ornate beauty of the building and all of the things that he could work into that scene. He saw the faces of the people looking on. He saw the trick that he was going to do with the light. 
but you won't find a whole lot of intimacy in that painting. But the older artist, the one who painted this, he's gone through bankruptcy. He's buried a wife. He's buried children. He's risen to fame, and he's seen that fame come crashing down. He doesn't seem in that picture to want to show us the scene of Simeon holding Jesus. To me, it seems like in this painting what he's wanting to do is just hold Jesus. The goal of today's text is not to move us from stick figure people prayers to elaborate masterpieces of eloquence. The goal of practicing these spiritual disciplines is to move us beyond not only the stick people prayers, but to move us also beyond the showing off to a place of intimacy and familiarity with our Lord. It is to move us not from the crude to the eloquent, but from the unfamiliar to the intimate. That is why we practice the spiritual disciplines, to move from the unfamiliar to the intimate. Do you wonder what God's will for your life is? Today's text tells you. This is the will of God for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Practice these fundamentals. That is the will of God for you. They will move you to the heart of God. I pray that this coming year will be a year filled with practicing the art of living in a relationship with Jesus. And may he move us from unfamiliarity and from boasting to intimacy with him. That's my prayer for all of you. And God help me, that's my prayer for me too. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active. And I thank you that you give us scripture so that we may hear your voice and that you give us prayer so that you hear ours that it is a two-way conversation. I also thank you that your word is filled with commands and not just suggestions. Thank you, Lord, for guiding us, for instructing us. I pray, Father, for myself and for all of us here, that you would use this year to deepen our affection for you, that you would make us people who would not, people who would rejoice, that we would see what it is that we have to rejoice in that we'd be quick to pray, both in formal established times for prayer and also in informal moments where we just offer prayers, that all of our thoughts would be Godward and that you would give us a sense of, of what we have to be thankful for and foster in us a deep gratitude. Thank you that you have this will for us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.